Thank you for that warm welcome. I want to give you some verbal applause um, because it has been such a joy for my husband and me to be part of your fellowship for a year now. And you've given us such a warm welcome. And we're just so happy to be part of a fellowship that um, gives priority to the things that we think are really, really important in the work of the Lord. So thank you for being who you are. My mother was number seven of 11 children in a farm family in the Midwest that survived the Great Depression. They rarely spoke about those hardships. But the Depression experience definitely shaped their behavior in a number of ways, some of which seemed kind of peculiar to their children. For example, my mother and her sisters, all my aunts, made sure that their kids never wore ragged underwear. Now their reasoning, often repeated to us, went like this. Don't wear underwear with holes in it because you might be in a car accident and if you end up at the hospital, it would be so embarrassing. I see somebody nodding, so you grew up in a similar kind of situation. We would roll our eyes because their obsession with ragged underwear was more embarrassing to us than actually being seen with a hole in our underwear. But they remained absolutely convinced, I think maybe fearful, that our underwear could tell a story about the whole family, about their success or failure as parents. Well, in our text this week, in Luke chapter 16, Jesus tells a story about a man whose underwear actually does tell us something important about him. The story begins in Luke chapter 16 at verse 19. We're going to back up and begin at verse 14. I invite you to stand with me for the reading of the word. Luke 16, beginning with verse 14 and 15. The Pharisees, who loved money, heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. He said to them, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others, but God knows your hearts. What people value highly is detestable in God's sight. Now we're going to jump to verse 19, where our parable begins. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received good things while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets. 
let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Interestingly, Jesus doesn't give this rich man a name. We'll come back to that with some reasons why. Instead, he does give us some intimate details about this man, everything from his linen undergarments to how he behaves in his own home. The man wears fine linen underwear. Yeah, well, linen is cool, both literally and figuratively. Linen is cool literally because if you live in a hot Mideast climate, you want a nice lightweight fabric like linen. It breathes, it's a smooth weave, it's not going to be scratchy against the skin like most of those cheaper homespun cloths would be. So linen is cool. Figuratively, linen is also very cool because only the wealthy can afford it. Jesus is saying this man wears designer underwear. Designer underwear that is out of reach for most folks. This man is not wearing Fruit of the Loom or Jockey. He is wearing Armani or Dolce and Gabbana. I don't know how many of you even have seen that kind of underwear. I hadn't, so I looked it up. <laughs> it was a bit of TMI, I'm not going to lie. <laughs> but $100 a pop, you men, for one piece of underwear. So that's telling us how extreme this was. So if this guy cares that much about something that doesn't even show, what about his outer clothing? What is that telling us about him? Well, his fine purple robe also tells a story because purple dye was the most expensive in the whole world. It was actually extracted from tiny mollusks in the sea and somebody had to harvest and pr process more than 9,000 of those tiny little creatures to make just one gram of purple dye. So, as you can guess, because of its cost, Purple became a hallmark of the elite, the Fortune 500 of the ancient world, the ruling class. In fact, Roman law actually delineated who had the right to wear purple. So the folks listening to Jesus' story immediately understand that this man is not only rich, he is a man of honor, the kind of honor that is recognized by Roman authority the kind of honor that common people long to have, that they dream about, what it would be like to have that kind of social power that comes with that kind of wealth and honor. In the opening verses we read, as a preface to this parable, Jesus gives his view of the kind of honor that is so highly prized in the culture. He says what is prized by human beings is actually an abomination in the sight of God. That's a big gulp. This opening statement actually lays down the thesis for the story Jesus is going to tell. And as the story unfolds, we come to understand why, why God does not value this kind of honor, which is only superficial elitism, really, and it serves as a sort of a pseudo-righteousness. And Jesus reveals it for what it is. So Jesus goes on to tell us that 
every day is dress-up day for this man. These are his everyday designer clothes we're talking about. And every day is banquet day for this guy. He feasts on a sumptuous spread of food seven days a week, even on the Sabbath. This would imply then that since people in his household must work to pr produce and prepare this feast on the seventh day, this man is not a Sabbath keeper. So his sense of righteousness is false indeed. Then Jesus caps off this elitism, this pseudo-righteousness, by mention of a gate. A gate between this rich man and another character in the story who is outside of the gate. And at this point, our story becomes a study in contrast. The rich man being the epitome of success, and Lazarus outside the gate being the epitome of human misery. The rich man is independent. He can afford to be. He's he can afford to be insulated from any undesirables or untouchables, whereas Lazarus is completely dependent. He even needs others to carry him morning and night to this gate, a place where he might expect to get maybe just some crumbs to sustain him till the next day. He's not independent at all. He's not insulated at all. In fact, he's very exposed and exposed as undesirable. The rich man is wearing purple robes and designer underwear, and Lazarus is wearing rags, maybe not even underwear to have holes in. The rich man is eating sumptuous food every day, like a banquet, extreme, even for the wealthy in that culture, while Lazarus sits outside the gate smelling the roasted meat, smelling the rich broth and the freshly baked bread, and just hoping, just hoping that maybe some crumbs will come his way and he'll be able to get them before the dogs do. Maybe he's hoping just for what they call the napkin bread. You see, linen wasn't used for napkins. Linen was used for underwear. So what they did for napkins was a flat piece of bread. They would use it for sopping up their food, for pushing food around on their plate, and they would use it for wiping their fingers on, and then they would toss it to the dogs. So he's hoping maybe even to get just a bit of that napkin bread to sustain him till tomorrow. They're feeding the dogs, but they're not throwing the food where Lazarus can get it. He's lower even than the dogs, the very, very, very bottom of the food chain. Whereas this rich man has access to all kinds of resources, we can assume he has the power to do something about Lazarus's situation. He has the means to change Lazarus's destiny. He has the opportunity to do so, but he spurns it. While he does nothing for Lazarus, Lazarus continues to have no access himself to resources. Certainly, the story lets us know that Lazarus could use some health care. He has s open sores on his body that the dogs are licking. So this tells us he doesn't even have the strength to fight off the dogs. Now, we don't know if these dogs were part of this man's estate or whether they were wild dogs that ran on the streets, which was common in that day. But it really doesn't matter. The dogs are there for a couple purposes in the story. 
Scripture often makes a point with irony, and here we have a double irony. These dogs, who would be trained to attack strangers or intruders, treat Lazarus better than the rich man treats him. They do not attack him. They know he's not a stranger. They come to him in peace. So they sort of have a relationship with him. And the second irony is that, in fact, their saliva, as they lick his sores, may actually be mitigating the effect of those sores for him because their saliva contains some antibiotic peptides that actually might be helping him. So whereas the man who had the resources to get some humane health treatment for Lazarus and didn't do it is bested by the dogs who show more humane treatment to Lazarus than this wealthy man has done. The contrasts that Jesus paints here could not be stronger than they are. With this rich man being the so upwardly mobile, so successful, sort of the stereotype who's controlling the conversation, and Lazarus being so downwardly mobile, the lowest of the low, that we could not even imagine anything lower on the ladder of humanity. And then they both die. So, of course, the rich man gets a proper burial, which was really important in that culture. It was just a sign of honor and basic human dignity. Lazarus gets no burial, the ultimate humiliation, sort of a denial of your personhood. But from here on, the contrasts that continue after their death are contrasts of a big reversal. The rich man still has no name in the story. We'll unpack that in a few minutes. Lazarus, the beggar, is given a name right from the get-go. This is really, really significant because in Jesus' parables, he generally does not name the characters. He's named Abraham and Lazarus in this one, but generally his characters in the parables are unnamed. He tells us something about them so we can place them as a type or tells us what they do for a living or where they are. Um, but Lazarus gets a name, gives him personhood. Jesus gives him dignity. This person who is untouchable to the rich man becomes very touchable to Jesus. Remember that Je for Jesus, no one was untouchable. He even touched the lepers. And the name Jesus gives him, Lazarus, actually means one whom God helps. God helps those who cannot help themselves. So Lazarus, who doesn't matter a fig to this rich man, most definitely matters to Jesus. While this rich man is burning in Hades, we recognize what a foreign experience it is for him to be miserable, and he's not handling it very well. Whereas Lazarus in life was miserable and carried by friends or, or relatives to a place that should have held some opportunity for him, in death, Lazarus is carried by angels to a very special place. Some translations call it Abraham's bosom. It was symbolic of a place of feasting, a place of celebration, a blissful state. 
And here is this lowly beggar, the lowest of the low on the ladder of humanity, seated at a position of honor right beside Abraham at heaven's banquet table. He is now the highest of the high. So how will this rich man respond as he watches this banquet party going on in Lazarus's honor? Will he come to his senses? Will he repent? Will he apologize to Lazarus? Will he ask for forgiveness? Well, he does talk, but he doesn't talk to Lazarus. He still sees Lazarus as untouchable. He won't cross that barrier. His concern is only for himself. That's pretty obvious. He's requesting mercy even though he gave none during his life. But how he makes his request is also significant. He calls out, Father Abraham, have mercy. So he plays his racial card here. He assumes that his patrilineal relation to Abraham is going to be currency for him. He further assumes that Lazarus is subject to do his bidding, to serve him even in the afterlife. Okay, let's all do a big collective eyebrow raise on that one, okay? This rich man cannot imagine, he cannot even imagine a world that isn't stratified into social classes in some way. And so he calls out, send him down, send Lazarus, Abraham, to cool my tongue. Unlike that lowlifer, I'm not accustomed to being miserable, so will you step on it? He is so miserable that he is even going to allow this untouchable Lazarus to touch his tongue. But it's not going to happen. He is gravely mistaken, pun intended. Now Lazarus is on the high side of the gate. The rich man's gate was a gate that could have been unlocked. It could have been crossed. But now there is a barrier between them that is fixed shut. They are separated by an uncrossable divide. So the rich man says, send Lazarus to warn my brothers. He's implying there, actually, that he is aware that he's a victim of his own choices because if his brothers have shared his priorities in the earthly life, then they are destined to the same fate, and he is concerned about them. But Lazarus cannot go to warn his brothers. That divide is uncrossable in either direction. So what does this parable mean for Jesus' listeners? And that includes us. Well, it makes the list of the hard sayings of Jesus... Most of the parables in Luke are on that list, by the way. Hard sayings because, for one, they're hard to understand, hard to get the real meaning out of them. And secondly, if we do get the real meaning out of them, it's usually hard to swallow. Like other parables Jesus tells, others that Chris has preached on, this story fits into a popular genre of folk tales in the ancient Middle East. Some of them persist today as pearly gate stories. You've probably heard them. Um, today they're told in the Middle East kind of to make a humorous point about some political frustration, and we have them in our culture too. 
I'll give you a benign one. An accountant dies and goes to heaven, and when he reaches the pearly gates, a happy crowd is waving banners and chanting his name, and St. Peter runs up and says, oh, I'm so glad I caught you. God is really looking forward to meeting such a remarkable man as you. And this accountant says, um, well, I tried to leave a good, live a good life, but a uh, little overwhelmed by this response, not expected, and St. Peter says, it's the least we can do for a human being who lived to the age of 160, and you still look so young. Uh, 160? Where'd you get that? I'm actually 40. St. Peter replies, that can't be right. We saw your timesheets. <laughs> so this is the genre of the story Jesus is telling, but we can be sure Jesus is not telling a story to amuse a crowd. He is not there to elicit laughter. Nor is his purpose to teach certain things we might assume from the story at first glance. His purpose is not to teach that suffering in your earthly life guarantees you a place in heaven. Or conversely, if you live the good life on earth, you can expect to suffer in that other place. How do we know this story is not teaching that? because such an interpretation would not be in agreement with Jesus' other teachings. So when we struggle with a hard passage, hard to understand, it helps if we do what I call read the Bible in stereo. We need to read a hard passage not only in its surrounding context, but also in the context of the whole of Scripture, the overarching messages that Scripture gives us. So when we read this story in that kind of stereo effect, and that's one reason we read from the prophet Amos tonight, that helps us unpack what Jesus is teaching here. So our first clue to unpacking Jesus' purpose is the structural context where Luke places this story in his gospel. It occurs as the third story in a trilogy of parables about how people use material possessions. So we've heard Chris preach on the prodigal son wasting his father's possessions. And last week, the next one, the dishonest steward wasting his master's possessions. And tonight, the rich man wasting his own possessions. That theme has been building in the parables Jesus has been telling, indicating that this story is intended to be about using our resources in ways for purposes God did not intend. Not using our resources for the way God intended us to use them. A second clue as to Jesus' purpose is found in a few pithy statements in the context around this story. One by the narrator, Luke, and two pithy statements by Jesus. So Luke says in the preface, the Pharisees heard all these stories Jesus was telling. And Luke also refers to the Pharisees as lovers of money. So he's telling the reader here that Jesus has a teaching for the Pharisees that has to do with how they're using resources, what they're, how their economy works. The two pithy statements by Jesus that Luke includes here one is in the previous parable that Chris preached on last week. You cannot serve both God and earthly wealth. If you missed that sermon, I would really encourage you to get online and listen to it. The second pithy statement by Jesus we read in our preface verses tonight. 
The kind of honor that human beings prize so highly is an abomination to God. Jesus is warning us not to fall into the trap of adopting our culture's priority system. It was true for them in the ancient Middle East. It's true for us today. Because Jesus is describing a whole new economy, the economy of the kingdom of God. And it is an economy of reversals. The Pharisees, who are listening to Jesus tell this story, I think would have been shocked at the reversal of fortunes that Jesus lays out in this story. Clearly, they identify as children of Abraham. And that places them with the rich man who ends up on the wrong side of that uncrossable divide. Jesus is making them sweat inside their own long robes of fine fabric. They are without excuse, according to Jesus, because they have Moses and the prophets, which means their scripture. That was Jesus' way of referring to the scripture that people had in the first century, which was our Old Testament scripture. And in passages like what we read from Amos, God pleads with his people. He pleads with them to be proactive in social justice. But they have forgotten. They have forgotten that Abraham was a model of hospitality to strangers and outsiders. They have essentially created a gated community within the religious establishment. They don't open that gate to undesirables like tax collectors and others that they label sinners. Jesus' use of the gate imagery here is very significant. The city gate, you might know, in the Old Testament was a place where the elders sat and did their leadership with their wisdom. The city gate was a place where justice was to be served, a place where God's mercy was made manifest in social justice, the kind of justice that not only punished the wrongdoer, but also made some of the inequalities of life a little more fair. The city gate was certainly not to be a place where the needy were, be, were to be dumped on the outside to be ignored as Lazarus was at the rich man's gate. But the Pharisees are not the only listeners to this story. We too are listeners to this story. So what about us? Well, I, how many of you are wearing $100 underwear? I Probably not, probably not. Oh, one guy, one brave hand. <laughs> I think it's easy for us to think this, these characters in this story are so extreme that I'm really maybe not rich because I'm not rich like that guy was rich. But if we make it relative, like I'm not that rich so I must not be the rich, then we have to take the flip side of that relativity and that is if I know someone, if I'm aware of someone who has less, I am rich. Now, I said we'd come back to why Jesus didn't give the rich man a name. It's an intentional literary device. So by keeping this man nameless and faceless, Jesus sets him up as an everyman type, an anybody type, to put it in gender-inclusive language. And this invites every reader, every listener to identify 
because this rich man has no name, we are invited to insert our own and to do some self-examination. Now, our, at first glance, we might miss it because our Western culture programs us to view this rich man as the epitome of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. I mean, at first glance, I tend to see him thoroughly enjoying his possessions, not maybe recognizing that he's wasting them. But in Jesus' kingdom economy, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Jesus urges us to pay attention to how he intends for us to use our assets and resources. So the big question this poses for us is this. Who is at our gate? Who is at your gate? Who is at my gate? I love the fact that Letter Street's Covenant Church is exemplary in reaching across gates, locally and globally, and we heard a testimony of that tonight at offering time. Reaching out to the other, reaching out to the needy, and Letter Street's Covenant Church is so good at supporting its partners in doing so in their walks of life, in their vocation, in their avocation. But I want to extend this gate concept just a little bit for us because the gate can actually be anywhere in your sphere of influence. It can be in your neighborhood, geographically. It can be in your PTA involvement. It can be in your extended family. It can be in your workplace. It can be on the soccer field. Are we paying attention to those in our spheres of influence where in all the places that we go, to those who are maybe physically hungry, maybe spiritually hungry, to the lonely, to the other, to the friendless. Now, I confess to you that I can think of times when I have left a gate locked. I'm not proud of that. But I have at times left a gate locked, I think, because I looked at the risk factor and opted out. A missed opportunity to see what God could do. I was the loser. Other times I think I simply lacked imagination for what God could do, what he was longing to do. So I didn't reach across the gate at times. So Jesus knows our hearts. He knew the Pharisees' hearts. And he tells this story with a sense of urgency. It's an everyday affair. Every day we have the opportunity to use our assets and resources as he intends us to. So it challenges me to widen my imagination about my neighbor, about my brother, about a coworker, about my kids' friends, about the mom or dad cheering beside me at the soccer field or sitting beside me while the grandkids are in a swimming lesson. So I leave you with this question to take before the Lord. Who is at your gate? Will you pray with me? Lord, open our eyes to see some of the invisible gates in our spheres of influence where we go every day. Open our ears to hear the needs, the cries on the other side of that gate. And open our hearts to respond 
Give us courage to remove barriers, to reach across, to share our resources freely. Lord, help us remember that it doesn't necessarily have to be much because you are the God who multiplies loaves and fishes. You are the God who can feed thousands with just a handful of food. So widen our imaginations, Lord, to envision what you long to do for those along our pathways in our daily lives, for the marginalized, for the other, for the unbeliever. Help us to love you more, to bring justice, and to walk humbly with you. In the name of our Lord and Savior, amen.